welcome to the Clemson Drone Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Burgett from Clemson University. Join me as I dive into the world of drone technology and explore its impact to the eyes of industry leaders. Hear how drone technology directly supports public agencies, private companies, and entrepreneurs from those leading the innovation. If you're a seasoned UAS program manager or just getting into the game, this is a place to learn from the best to help your program soar to new heights. Make sure you subscribe now on your favorite podcast platform so you don't miss a single episode of the Clemson Drone Podcast. At Clemson Drone, the sky is not the limit, it's just the beginning. Hello, everyone. This is Joe Berge with Clemson University, and I want to welcome you to the first Clemson Drone Podcast. We started this pod to be a place where we can talk with leaders in the UAS industry and learn how they are using drones to improve the way they do business. I'm really excited to speak with two guests from Duke Energy. For those of you who don't live in South Carolina, Duke Energy is one of the major utility companies in the Southeast, servicing North Carolina, South Carolina, and Florida. They also have divisions that service other markets, including those out West. Duke has approximately 7.7 million electrical customers and another 1.6 million natural gas customers. They have a diverse energy portfolio, including traditional coal and natural gas fire plants, but also nuclear, hydro, and solar. Jackson Rollins is the Director of Unmanned Aerial Systems at Duke with the assistance of Garrett Scott, who is the Chief Pilot. Both have been in the UAS field for a long time and have a lot of experience to share. So with that, Jackson and Garrett, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. All right, great. So let me start with a couple of high-level questions for Jackson, and then we're going to dive into some more of the details and the mission-specific questions for Garrett. Jackson, uh, tell our listeners who may not be aware of, of Duke and know those things, maybe you can kind of flesh out a little bit about who Duke is. I mean, I gave a little bit of, a, of an intro there, but t- talk a little about what Duke is and what you guys do. Sure. So uh, Duke Energy, as you mentioned, is a, is a large electric and gas utility. So uh, when we think about the electric side of the business, we're responsible for generation, transmission, and distribution. So end-to-end delivery of power to the, uh, to the customer. Same can be said for uh, the gas side of the business. It was formerly Piedmont Natural Gas before a merger several years ago. And uh, so, again, delivery of electricity to our customers is is the name of the game for Duke Energy. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So, um, uh, this is obviously, this podcast is focused on UAS technology. So, uh, you guys have a huge UAS program. If I'm not mistaken, I think it's the largest UAS program in South Carolina. I don't know of any other agency, public or private that has more pilots than you guys. But let's start with how did you how did your UAS program start? Yeah, uh, great question. So uh, at Duke Energy, we have what's called an emerging technologies group. And what they do is take a look at technologies that are anywhere from three to five years, typically from maturity. And they they look at how those technologies may be able to benefit Duke Energy as a uh, as a power utility or in some way benefit the customer at the end of the day. So drones hit that radar back in around 2013. So emerging technology started looking into uh, what the technology could do to help the company and at the end of the day, the customer. Fast forward uh, several years, there were uh, use case development and working with industry experts in the field to determine that, yes, in fact, inspections being the predominant use case, drone technology could certainly expedite the type of inspections that we do on a normal basis of our power infrastructure. So we, we look at where that, that technology then moves out of emerging technologies into its own group within Duke. So 2017 came along, so just after the inception of Part 107, and the, the aviation group at Duke Energy, who, uh, who is a, a, a larger group as a whole doing inspections and travel services, 
took on the UAS responsibility in a it, really in a small way. Two to three people uh, in 2017. The group was founded in aviation services. Upon inception, it was really a clearinghouse from a governance standpoint. So building policy and procedure and training as a group, and then deploying the technology out into the business with with the pilots actually sitting external to the aviation services group. That has organically changed over the last five years to be more of a uh, an enterprise operational group within aviation services to support the business. Okay, awesome. So let me dive into a little bit more. So in 2017, you were at I think you said three or four, two, three, four or so pilots. Where are you at today? You know, what, tell me about the kind of the high level of where your program is at today in terms of, you know, how many pilots do you have? Are they are they full time, part time? And then, you know, again, high level of, and you mentioned this a little bit, but a high level, what are some of the things that you're using drones for? And then we're going to get into gear a little bit, some of the specifics there. Sure. As I mentioned, the, uh, the, the group started 2017 with two to three people. As we started organically shifting to an operational focus, we obviously had to hire pilots to do that. So from 2017 until now, we have grown really a doubling effect up until last year up to a, a, we've seen a max of around 50 in the group. And that number fluctuates depending on the demand. We've got some uh, some large scale programs that really drive that demand. But the type of work that we do, again, uh, very heavy on the inspection side of the business. So uh, looking at our assets. So whether it's a generating facility, transmission, distribution lines, most of the work that we do is around replacing some former uh, method of inspection with a drone to get a, either a better view, a faster inspection cycle. There are many benefits that we've been able to replace the traditional method with. We also get into what we would call work with the drone. So whether it's stringing line on a transmission structure where uh, the the typical type of line stringing equipment can't access the area, whether it's a swampy area or, or something of that nature, we do water sampling with the drones. And then, you know, we're, we're looking at some of the more advanced things that are, uh, that are not under the current regulatory framework beyond visual line of sight and those sort of things. All right. Awesome. So, Garrett, let me ask you a couple of specific questions. Now, Jackson said you have 50 or so pilots, you know, plus or minus. Are those full-time pilots or are those like people who have you know, another job doing something else, an engineer or whatever, and then also are part 107 and use drone as a tool? Yeah, great question. So, so I would say um, it's a little bit of a mix. So the the 50 folks that sit inside of aviation, you know, about a dozen or so of those folks are full-time Duke employees. So they work for Duke Energy. The remainder of the group is really made up of contract workers. So they're essentially W-2 employees that we hire on. Uh, we put them through training and we kind of teach them, you know, what they need to know to do the work. And they go out and do the work uh, on Duke Energy's behalf, and they're W-2 full-time pilots. And then we also have folks uh, that sit in the business units of, of Duke Energy, so in transmission and distribution and generation, that have other jobs. Maybe they're an engineer, reactor operator, you know, vegetation management specialist, and, and those folks can also go through our training and be issued a drone so that they can use the drone as a supplemental tool to help them perform the work that they have to do in their daily job. All right, awesome. So well, let me let me pull on that thread a little bit. So I would imagine that that the people that like you just described that have a job doing something and then you know are equipped and and trained and licensed to fly a drone to support that, you know, let's set them aside. But the the group that I'm talking about, maybe those W two that you're talking about, are the full time pilots. 
that are not engineers. They are not, you know, construction managers or they don't, you know, they're, they're, we'll say their expertise lies in drone tech and not necessarily on the inspection side. So how do you do that? Let's just say as an example, you're inspecting, you know, just to keep it simple, you're inspecting some, some lines, you know, or distribution center or whatever it happens to be. And there are, I would imagine that your engineers are really good at inspecting that sort of thing. And they have that knowledge and training to do that, but they don't have the expertise in drones. Whereas then you have some other people that have expertise in drones, but have no knowledge in, in what they're actually looking at. So how do you marry that up? What, what does that team look like? You know, how do you go about those inspections? Sure. Yeah, that's a challenging concept. And, and the and the project that, that I would highlight would be our Carolina's Grid Data Improvement Project. So if you're a South Carolina resident and you see a Duke Energy drone team out in the field flying distribution lines, so the small power lines, those individuals are full-time, typically contract pilots, and their role is to go out and collect data on the distribution infrastructure so that we can make improvements is is ultimately the end goal to to that infrastructure and help reduce uh, outage times and and that sort of stuff and so you know um, we bring them in usually they have very little drone knowledge little to no uh, electrical infrastructure knowledge and we essentially have to have our own in-house experts on what are the bare minimum things that you have to know, about electric infrastructure to do the role. And that is certainly a component of it, but but we try very hard in aviation to not be the experts in everything other than the aviation side of it. So first and foremost, we're teaching them safety management, we're teaching them crew resource management, we're teaching them flight operations. And then on top of that, we have to give those individuals an education in how do you uh, understand electrical hardware on a distribution pole? How do you read where power is flowing to and fro? And so it is a mix of, of learning that has to take place. All right. So as part of your training program, uh, these, you know, W-2 pilots or, or whatever, they get, you know, kind of a, a high level understanding of what they're looking at. Are they given an assignment to, hey, inspect this asset they go out and they inspect it on their own. They collect the data and they transmit it back to the experts at Duke. And from that, then they analyze it and say, there's an issue, there's not an issue, or we need more data. Is that kind of how it works? Yeah, yeah, you're spot on. And so really the process is we give them, uh, we're given work packages essentially from our customer delivery team. And our crews are trained to take that information and go out and collect the data basically in accordance with a very specific set of images and order of images to be taken, lighting conditions, all of this kind of stuff. And when that data comes back, we're not analyzing it. Again, we're not the experts. We're, we've trained our folks to know how to take the data and collect the data. Um, but then that gets handed back off to folks who are electrical engineers, who are planners, that, that sort of thing, so that, so that the analysis can be made by a competent person. Now, you, you said images. Do you guys get into thermography or maybe LIDAR or any other kind of uh, data that is collected other than just images? Yeah, we're dealing with all kinds of, of data sets, you know, from thermal imagery to LIDAR point clouds to orthomosaics. We're doing a lot of really high-resolution 3D mesh, meshes for nuclear where we're essentially uh, using 100 megapixel cameras to collect images of like nuclear containment domes. So at a Coney nuclear station, uh, flying the outside of a containment dome, looking for concrete spalding and 
and that sort of stuff and uh, ensuring the integrity of of uh, of the reactor containments um and so we're dealing with all different kinds of data sets on a daily basis. Okay, awesome. So, you know, and again, I, I can appreciate that, you know, every mission's unique, has unique characteristics and whatnot. But can you walk us through, like, if, if I was an observer and I was, you know, and if I hopped out of the truck with you, what does a typical UAS mission look like? I mean, from just getting out of the truck to, you know, getting back in the truck and ending it for the day. Yeah, I, I would say it really starts well before the truck. And so, you know, uh, you know par- part of it is you've got to be proficient in what we're what you're being asked to do. So there's a lot of training that goes in on the front end. There's a lot of practice and discussions um, that, that happen well ahead of time. So, for an example, we get a request for a drone mission. We have a pre-mission uh, planning meeting with that with the customer, internal customer that requests that work, and we talk about what are the hazards, what are the gotchas, what are the lessons learned from the past, what data do they really need. Sometimes they don't know what they need. We have to have a conversation with them to figure out what that what that end state is, and then once we have that, then you know we roll into the pre-mission planning process on the aviation side notifying and coordinating with our manned aviation assets our helicopter inspections doing your weather planning all, all of that uh, sort of stuff uh, from a from an FAA standpoint and then you get into the field and we get out of the truck and we're using checklists we have procedures that we follow standard operating procedures um, a lot of the times we're coordinating with the owner of that site. You know, if we're at a plant, uh, we may not know everything about it. So we have to kind of go through the the process of that facility to make sure we're doing everything safely. And then and then the drone flying is usually the most boring part, right? Um, especially for something like an ortho mosaic. We may do, you know, four hours of work ahead of time to get on site to watch the drone fly for an hour and we're not touching anything, right? And so Hopefully, the most boring part of what we do is watching the drone fly, uh, in, in a lot of cases, and and then uh, and then the data is a kind of whole another conversation on the on the back end. Yeah, no, so yeah, I've said that to you know when I do part one hundred seven training, one of the rules is you can only fly one drone at a time per pilot, and that's usually one that students are like, oh, that makes sense, but I can't tell you how many times I've had like three or four drones in the back of the truck, and it's just me, and I'm watching it mow the yard in the sky, and it would be so easy just to send up another one and and cut the mission time down in half, but you got you to gotta follow the rules. I'm going to, again, tug on that thread a little bit more, though. So if I'm looking at the truck, can you kind of describe just physically what it looks like? I mean, I'm assuming... Um, you know, what kind of aircraft are you using? Do you guys use launch pads? Do you have cones? Uh, what's, you know, do you have more than, uh, do you have requirements that there's a VO? I'm sure you use VOs on certain circumstances, but it, you have blanket policies that there's always X number of people on the job. What, are, what does it look like in that perspective? Yeah, so I would say there's some things that are rigid and there's some things, the answer is it depends. So the, the rigid part of, of your question is um, all of our operations require a visual observer. So we don't do anything single pilot today outside of some of the stuff that we're starting to get into with uh, beyond visual on a site dock operations that will likely be a single operator, you know, via computer from some remote area. But for part 107 operations, pilot and a visual observer, and, and it's really a safety case for us. It's, it's much about having a second person there to help identify risks, mitigate risks, you know, take care of each other, that, that, that sort of thing. And, um, and so on the operational build outside, it, it kind of depends. So for somebody who's on a customer delivery project doing distribution inspections, 
they're in a, you know, a four-door SUV and they're typically flying like a Skydio S2 Plus. So a small, you know, quadcopter and the footprint, we want it to be small. We don't want to be intrusive. We don't want to create more noise than we need to. We need to be able to kind of be on side streets and that sort of thing. On kind of other areas of the operations, we have very large, you know, Duke Energy utility trucks, um, not bucket trucks, but think like a big Ford F-250 with a with a large uh, cover on the back with inverters for charging and, and, and you know, different equipment that's needed for, for that operation. And, and so complexity varies in, in, in our operations. It's not always a small quadcopter. As Jackson mentioned, sometimes we're pulling string. We're pulling 2,000, 3,000 foot uh, string pulls for uh, line stringing re- operations, uh, line reconductoring. And so those are a little bit more complex. There's a lot more equipment. They're, the aircraft's a little bit more uh, hazardous to the folks that are involved in it. And so it really depends on the level of complexity. Jackson's got. Yeah, I, w- I would just add from that build out standpoint. So if you think about a, a distribution uh, type of mission where we're on side streets, as Garrett uh, put it, some, some of them busier than others, right? We're coning out the parking location of the vehicle to make sure that uh, from a safety aspect, we're, we're covering our employees uh, because sidewalks aren't, aren't available everywhere, right? If we're on a site, so a generating facility that has hard surfaces everywhere, pavement of some sort, then we're probably not using a, a landing pad or something like that to, uh, to you know, launch and recover the aircraft. And certainly if we're using a, a M600 or a, or a M300 that has, you know, quite a bit of standoff due to the leg structure, we're not using uh, landing pads. But if we're on a transmission right away that's overgrown and we're using a, a medium-sized aircraft, we're certainly putting uh, putting some more emphasis on that landing and, and takeoff location with landing pads and that sort of thing just to, you know, from an aircraft safety, safety standpoint. Okay. Awesome. And that makes perfect sense. And, and it really paints the picture well. So let me, let me ask both of you our, our, a final question, but uh, I'll ask Jackson it to you first, then Garrett, let me, let me hear your response. But let's just say that there's another utility out there, maybe a smaller one that's, that does not have a UAS program, but uh, has been reading about it, sees that other, other folks are, you know, is sold on the benefit. They've got some, you know, approval, got a little bit of startup money. They got a pr- management approval and buy-in and whatnot. What advice uh, would you give that municipality about UAS tech in terms of, you know, how would they start and just overall general advice you'd give them? Yeah, it's a it's a great question because I think it's it's so much deeper than what you said about proving out that the technology can be beneficial. And I'll let Garrett touch on uh, some of the more tactical things uh, that are associated with that. But from uh, from my position in the organization, it's all about who who the UAS department is at the company, where you sit at the company, and some of those those governance type of roles that you have to, to govern the use of the company. So the technology is so available, I would say, and, and uh, cost effective that at a utility like Duke Energy, you can have people out, uh, you know, in 30,000 employees, there are people out there who, ha- who have seen the benefit and can go buy, buy a drone off the shelf at, at Best Buy, right? And, uh, and start using it. But as a company, you have to, you have to first put those, uh, those sidelines out there to make sure that everybody's playing in the same in the same game. So I would say uh, for a utility, ensuring that you have a corporate policy in place is, is vital to starting a, a drone program. And you know, it really doesn't 
Uh, it doesn't matter in that case where the program sits, but in our case, having a, a robust aviation department, it makes perfect sense to put UAS in an aviation department, but that's not always the case uh, with some of our peers. And so uh, you, you have to be really selective of where that, where that department sits, uh, who that leadership is, and if they have buy-in to the fact that aviation is unique in a way, very similar to the way uh, nuclear power is unique. Uh, it has a lot of regulation and, and that sort of thing that is not apparent to everybody. And so someone starting out, I, I think the, the best advice I could give is really ensure that uh, you have a, a good policy in place, that, you're, uh, that you're, you have buy-in from the leadership to enforce that policy across the company. And then uh, the last thing I'll say is from a, a use case development standpoint, we have seen tremendous value in getting all the low-hanging fruit, right? So you can operate under Part 107 very effectively and provide value to the business. We're currently looking outside of the box in, uh, we have waivers in place for beyond visual line of sight operations. We're looking at remote operations, as Garrett mentioned, uh, with, with the dock. But but you don't need that, right, to uh, to be effective as a as an organization. So, uh, Garrett, more on the tactical. Well, I, I'm a, uh, Garrett, I'm sure you're going to add to that. But man, I got to have you guys back on to talk about the, the policy and your SOPs because there's so much within that topic uh, that could be a podcast in and of itself. But but yeah, Garrett, can you go ahead and add on that? Yeah, and I was just going to caveat uh, Jackson's points a little bit, you know. And so, I, you know, when you talk about setting up a UAS program in an energy utility realm, you really got to start and you got to do it once and you've got to do it right. And it really does start with kind of an acknowledgement that this is an aviation field. Um, and I think drones still are kind of looked at as this is a technology like a computer or a LIDAR base station. And, you know, just, it's just a tool and it doesn't, you know, it, the fact that it flies is just part of the, of the nature of the thing, but you really have to look at it from an aviation standpoint. There's so many best practices from from the world of manned aviation that apply to kind of uh, UAS technology and what we do here. And the foundation of, of success for a program is uh, rooted in standards and procedures and standards and procedures that are rooted in the lessons that have been learned in manned aviation. And so that's really kind of what I would contribute the success of our program to is we're not out flying drones just to fly drones. We fly them under the mindset of a of an aviation operation. And, and, and us sitting under aviation within Duke Energy has been, been hugely beneficial to that end. And so, you know, just taking the time to do it right. And then the other thing I would say is um, that we're, we work in a very collaborative industry. And so uh, we're, we're at events, um, you know, several throughout the year where we benchmark with our industry peers. There's, uh, there's crosstalk, there's cross-pollination around ideas, around different approaches to things. And so there's a ton of best practices out there. It's not just energy utilities that we talk to about kind of how to go about setting up stuff. We have police departments that come and visit us. We have educators that, that want to talk. And, and you know, my experience in the industry has been that it's just very collaborative and, and everybody's willing to kind of share perspectives and help, uh, which you don't find in, in, a, lot, in a lot of industries. Um, and so, you know, reach out, have a conversation. I think that's very important. Awesome. Well, listen, guys, we'll, we'll leave it there, but this has been like an amazing conversation. You guys have a, a great, great program over there, and I appreciate you sharing your insights and your experience with us. Thanks for having us. Yes.
Absolutely. All right. Very good. Well, thanks, everybody. Thank you guys for tuning in to another episode of the Clemson Drone uh, Podcast. If you haven't already, go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That kind of helps us out with the Apple and Google algorithms, uh, especially as this is a brand new podcast. It kind of helps us get up on the rankings. So please do that and uh, look forward to doing this again with another episode. So thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Clemson Drone Podcast. Don't forget to follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Learn more about our online training offerings by going to ClemsonDrone.com. Thanks again. And remember, at Clemson Drone, the sky is not the limit, it's just the beginning.